tonight, we are in the first Sunday evening of the month, and that's when we take some time to answer some questions that you have asked. I always like to begin by pointing out the value of asking questions. And I mentioned to Brother Jeff Flat earlier that uh, I've always liked the commercial for Farm Bureau where this little young man is asking, or the young lady's asking questions of her daddy, why is a rainbow multicolors? Why is this happening? And of course, Charlie's sitting behind providing the answers. And the truth is, is that when we're children, early in life, we ask a lot of questions. In fact, I can remember our boys asking so many questions, I thought they were walking question marks. Uh, And I'd say that many of you have experienced the same thing. But there's a quest for knowledge. And hopefully we never outgrow that idea that I want to know more. I want to learn more. I want to be better. And to do that, I need to know what I need to understand. As we have discussed each month, we've talked about the kind of questions that we encounter. Some are textual in the sense that they ask the question, what does a passage of Scripture mean? And our second question tonight will address that. Some are topical in the sense that they ask about a particular biblical teaching or doctrine. That's what our first question will be about tonight. And then there are questions that are practical. And in some sense, they're all practical because they relate to When I understand the scriptures, how do I live them in my everyday life? But there's some that are more focused on practicality. Well, let's look at the two questions for tonight. And the first question, I'm going to go ahead and apologize to the person who asked it because they asked it several months ago. And to be honest with you, I lost it. And uh, I finally got it in the list and worked it in. What is repentance? How can I tell if someone has truly repented? Now, uh, when you start thinking about that question in and of itself, there's so much that could be said. In fact, I had already begun to think about this a few weeks ago when I went to the gospel meeting at East End. And I know several of you were there that night when Brother Don Blackwell preached on the five R's of repentance. I have heard a number of lessons, and there's a number of variations for the R's, but the ones we're going to use tonight are similar. Recognition, remorse, resolve, reformation, and then restitution or resolution, uh, depending upon which one of those you would want to choose. I'm not going to try to preach a whole lesson on repentance tonight. I'm going to try to touch very quickly on each of these five items and then to address the question that was asked, and that way we've got a good foundation to understand. We start to think about recognition. There has to be an awareness of our sinfulness. Before you and I can repent of any sin, I've got to know that I'm a sinner, and I've got to know what kind of sin it is that I am repenting of. Perhaps one of the best illustrations is found in the parable that the Lord told of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And in verse 17, Jesus said, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? 
It says that he came to himself. What did he come to realize? I am in my situation because I have violated my father's law. He tried to teach me the right way. He tried to show me how I ought to live. And what did I do? I ran off into a far country and I wasted what he gave me. Repentance involves you and I coming to ourselves and seeing ourselves as we really are. I could spend a lot of time talking about James chapter 1, about a man looking into the perfect law of liberty. How it reflects to us who we really are. And part of repentance is coming to the knowledge of who we are, a recognition of it. Or in Acts chapter 2, you remember Peter preached that sermon and he comes to the conclusion in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. You see, in their minds previously, they had looked at Jesus as being nothing more than just a mere man who had been a pretender. Now they know he's the Son of God. And it says when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Recognition of what we have done and the gravity of it. From that comes remorse. Godly sorrow. Now some use the word regret here and I don't like the word regret as well as I do remorse. Because what we're talking about is not mere regret but a real remorse based upon the previous one, the fact that we have some recognition of our sins. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You see the two kinds of attitudes. True remorse says, I wish I had not done what I had done. Not because I'm sorry I got caught, but because I recognize the gravity of my actions. In Luke 22, verses 60 through 62, you can easily see it illustrated in Peter. Do you remember as the Lord had told him he was going to betray him and Peter denied the Lord the third time? The rooster crows and what happens? Verse 62, so Peter went out and wept bitterly. Why was he so remorseful? He saw what he had done to the Lord. He saw his sin and the gravity of it. But then from that recognition and from that remorse comes a resolve. One that says, I know what I'm going to do. Going back to that passage in Luke chapter 15, verses 17 and 18. I want you to notice verse 18. After he came to himself, he said in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before your sight. The truth is, is that there's got to be some resolve on our part that says, I'm going to act. There's got to be some sort of change of mind. You see, a resolve is an attitude of the mind. It's saying, I am going to do something about where I am. 
I like the way Ezekiel 18 puts it. Verses 30 and 31. God says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. You see, the resolve we're talking about is that new heart. It is that new spirit. It's the kind that says, I don't think about this the way I used to think about it. I've changed my mind and now I'm going to act differently. The fourth part is reformation. That is not just the change of mind, but the actual change of action that follows along with it. In that same context of Ezekiel 18, this time verses 21 and 22, he says, But if wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live and shall not die. None of his transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him, because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Notice here's a man who has a change of heart. And what does he do? Now he keeps God's statutes. He's reformed his life. Previously, if he was drinking, if he was lying, if he was stealing, if he was cheating, he's not doing that anymore. There's been a reformation that has taken place. In Acts 26 and verse 20, Paul, before King Agrippa, says, But he declared to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should turn to God and do works befitting repentance. So if you're an idolater, you're no longer an idolater. If you're a homosexual, you're no longer a homosexual. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11? And he talks about all those sins, and he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Then finally, the fifth R is restitution or resolution. And this means that a person will make amends insofar as is possible. It may not always be possible, but if you can make amends, you will. Luke chapter 19 and verse 8. As we prepare to read this passage, you will remember that Zacchaeus was in the city of Jericho, had climbed up into a sycamore tree to be able to see Jesus pass by. You'll remember Jesus asked Zacchaeus to come down, and Zacchaeus is trying to explain how he resolved situations in which he was in error. He said to him, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. You see, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And somebody may come and say, this person over here made more money or they have more than you think they have and to make a false accusation against them. If Zacchaeus came along and he charged that person on the basis of what had been told him and he was in error, he went back and corrected it. 
He said, I not only restore to that person, I restore fourfold to him. He wants to make sure that everything is right. But perhaps the clearest of all the passages is found in Ezekiel 33 and verse 15. He said, if indeed the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, and walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Notice carefully, he gives back what was taken in a pledge. If you made a pledge, you gave something, we would call it earnest money or something such as that, and then once the person has fulfilled their obligations, you give it back. Or he talks about what someone has stolen. He said he has to give it back. Restitution says, if I have harmed you, I've got to make it right. Let me tell you what that involves. That means if I've lied about you, I've got to go tell the truth. If I've gossiped about you, I've got to correct that gossip. That means if I have done something that is contrary and I've harmed you, I've got to help you be made whole insofar as I possibly can. Now to the question that was asked, and I know you say you spent a long time laying the groundwork is, how do I know that someone has repented? Are there any indications that I can look at and say, well, yes, they have repented? Well, I know you're familiar with Luke chapter 17, where he says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. What that means is I have to make you aware of the fact that you have done something to me. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. You remember Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and following? He said, if your brother sins against you, go and show him the fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. There's got to be some making aware of the sin so that, that person can even repent to begin with. If they don't know it, they can't repent of it. And so if you find someone, you make them aware of the sin, he says if you rebuke your brother, if he repents, forgive him. There's got to be some way that you know that he has repented. And I'd suggest to you that in the context it is involved when a person says, I am sorry, will you forgive me? But then one's person's or one's life will reflect that. Brother David read just a few moments ago from Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 and following, and people were coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. And he asked them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he said, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Do things so that people can see that you have repented. If you've stolen my car and you repent and you say, forgive me, and I said, sure, I'll be glad to forgive you. Now, where's my car? You've got to make it right as far as possible. But now, if I go back to Matthew, or excuse me, Luke 17, I've got to recognize there's no guarantee that that person won't commit the same sin again. You see, the idea that we have sometimes in our mind is... 
If a person sins and they repent and they sin again and they repent, after about the second or third time, we say, I don't believe they repented. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns and says, or to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now someone says, I just don't believe they can do that. Look at yourself. How many of us have made a mistake, recognize our mistake, ask forgiveness of it, and then shortly thereafter commit the same mistake over and over again? The bottom line is sometimes when it's not something that a person can restore or resolve, you have to take their word for it. I don't know the thought behind the person asking the question. My suggestion is, is that when someone comes to you and says, I repent, you give them all the benefit of the doubt, and then you expect them to live up to what they said they've done. And that would have seemed to be in harmony with God's will. Question number two. Will you discuss the Lord's teaching on the mustard seed from Matthew chapter 17? Now, I do know who asked this question, and I'm not going to give you any indication of who it was. But I do know that this person has faced a number of struggles in their life. And I know that those struggles are ongoing. And I do know that the mention of the word faith as of a mustard seed makes some of us feel as if we need more faith. Let's look at this passage. The reference to a mustard seed is a common figure. It's comparable to our figures of, for instance, a drop in a bucket or a needle in a haystack. For instance, if I talk about a needle in a haystack, you, you say, well, it's something really small and something that's really large or huge and it's difficult to find. If we say something is a drop in a bucket, it's just a small amount, and it sometimes may seem insignificant. The mustard seed was something considered to be incredibly small. In fact, look at Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32. And he put a parable forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. You know, it's incredibly small. He says, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Before you is a picture of some mustard flowers you'll notice that they open up and to the left of the flower are some pods that have not yet completely opened up. A few years ago when we were in Israel, I asked our guide, would you please stop and let me make a photo of a mustard seed tree? He said, there's one right there. He asked the driver to stop. I got off the bus. We all took pictures of it. And uh, you, you zoom in and one of those brown pods I brought back 
in a little bottle, and I've shown some of you, and you break the pod open, and inside are bunches of seeds. They're about the size of a flake of pepper. Really small. You plant that, and it becomes a tree six, eight, maybe even ten feet tall. The kind that birds could make their nest in. Jesus will use this illustration twice. He uses it once in the one we just considered, that is, comparing it to the growth of the kingdom, just like you sow it in the field, and you would intentionally do this. And it grows and grows and grows. But he also uses it to talk about the level of a person's faith. For just a minute, let's look at Luke 17 and verse 20. Or Matthew 17, 20, excuse me. Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. A person reads that and thinks, Oh, if I just had just a little... Just a very small amount. Luke's account at a different occasion says, So the Lord said, If you had faith as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. For just a moment, let's talk about faith being weaker at times and stronger at others. And I will tell you that all of us know some things by experience. We know there are times when our faith is stronger. Many times when we come to church and we greet people and we sing songs and we are participants in a worship that gives God glory and honor, we walk out with our faith built up and encouraged. And there are times when we're going through difficulties and stresses in life and we think, my faith is just nothing. In Matthew 6 and verse 30, talking about those who worry about what they're going to eat, what they're going to wear, where they're going to live, he says, oh, you of little faith. In Romans 14 verse 1, receive one who is weak in the faith. In the very context of forgiveness, he said, the disciples said to the Lord, increase our faith. In Acts 16 and verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. You see, there are different kinds of of growth in our faith personally and as a congregation of God's people. But this is also another use of a figure. The idea of the moving of a mountain, or the case in Luke 17, the moving of a tree, involves a figure of speech. Like, for instance, you remember 1 Corinthians 13, 2, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith so as I can move mountains, oh, that's the kind of faith that's real powerful. But you see, there's a deeper meaning here. As you think about the faith of a mustard seed, because if I go to the context of where the Lord had these apostles and they tried to cast a demon out of a man and they couldn't do it. They weren't successful. 
And the Lord is telling them, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could do that. In Luke 10, verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Notice, the demons are subject to us. They'll do what we tell them to. Oh, they sort of, wow, look at our power. Look at our might. Luke 17, verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. They didn't understand the things properly. They were looking at, look what we can do. Look at our power. Look at our might. And then if I start reading about the, the faith of a mustard seed, and I get thinking, well, I'm just not strong enough. The apostles weren't strong enough either. You see, the truth is, they were looking, what can I do? Where's my power in all of this? They were focused on what they could do. But if you look at Mark's parallel account of this in Mark chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, and when he had come out into the, or come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to this, them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Oh, you disciples want to know why you couldn't cast it out? Is because you were relying strictly upon what you believed was your ability. And what you needed was a stronger spiritual focus. Fasting and prayer. And you know, when you and I are facing the challenges of the devil, we must learn to spend more time in fasting and prayer. That is, we need to make ourselves more spiritually focused. And that's when our faith will be increased. That's when our faith will grow to that greater than a mustard seed. Those are good questions because good questions seek to draw us closer to God and how to please Him. But we must be careful that when we look at questions, we question ourselves. And we ask, in all that I read and all that I studied, did I get anything that helped me? In the early part of Luke chapter 13, there were some present at that season who told him about the Galileans Whose, Pilate, whose, blood, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others who, because they suffered these things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here's what we do. We look at people like the Galileans who were suffering. We look at the people who the tower of Siloam fell, and we tend to wonder in our minds, what did they do that they suffered these tragic circumstances? And Jesus is saying, don't look at it that way. Don't ask about them. I tell you no, except you repent. Focus on yourself. Ask the question, am I the one who needs to repent? Am I the one who needs to make a change in my life? 
And I think back about what the Lord said to those apostles, or particularly the 70. He says, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Don't look and say, look what we're able to accomplish. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Is your name written there? If the Lord were to call the roll tonight, would he call your name? If he wouldn't call your name, you need to make a decision now. You need to say, I've got to take care of this problem that's in my life. And I'm going to become a Christian. I'm going to come forward. I'm going to repent of my sins, confess my faith, and be baptized. If you're a Christian, you're carrying around that load of sin with you. It's time to take that load off. It's time to repent of it. And let's pray together. Would you come while we stand inside?